Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Well, we have the honor of uh, having Josh here in our church. I'm very, very happy and excited to hear from him. He, um, he's rocked my heart a lot of times on his humility and the focus that he has for uh, the needy and the poor. And uh, yeah, he's always bringing this humility heart to, um, to the church. So I'm very, very honored to welcome Josh. Can you come to the front? Yeah, can you please all welcome him? Now you got a mic and everything. That's awesome. Let me just pray for you and then we can kick it off. Father, thank you so much for Josh. Thank you so much for for his life and for the message that you've given him. I just ask that you fill him up with wisdom and that we can hear what his heart is been uh, dwelling on in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Wow. Being introduced as particularly humble. That's great. Great. No way to win with that one. Now, if you're anything like me, then maybe you know about the occasional head injury. Uh, maybe you, like me, have been somewhere where you've, you know, pressed a towel to your bleeding head in the darkened back seat of a 15-passenger van, the sky beyond your window, a star-speckled canopy of velvety blue-black, and maybe you know, like me, you couldn't keep the pressure properly applied because you're bouncing around on the bench seat as the van capers over the craggy, pockmarked asphalt of another Corn Belt Highway in America's rural Midwest. And you see, when you spend months on the road, the days and weeks blur together. Where were we? Illinois, Indiana? Aren't there cornfields in Iowa? I don't know. The headache. I'm sure it wasn't helping. See, I'd somehow struck myself in the forehead uh, with a microphone like this one during an evening's performance. You don't plan injuries like these. They just sort of happen. You show up to another local dive. You unload all kinds of guitars and drums and amplifiers, a mess of wires and glowing tubes and circuit boards, and you wait around all afternoon and evening. You play music for a little while, then you pack it all up and you head to the next city. But maybe... If you're anything like me, you're also low on cash all the time. And maybe you survive for months at a time on the sum total of $5 a day. No more, no less. So when your salary, as we called it, is a $5 per diem, you have to get creative. And you learn things. Cheap pasta, for example, in the early 2000s at least, was a dollar a box. And you can get a can of off-brand marinara for 89 cents. You can survive for weeks on peanut butter sandwiches for mere nickels and dimes. And when you survive on $5 a day, $35 a week, for four to six weeks straight, you learn to bypass hotels. Hotels cost money. And someone will usually let you sleep on the floor if you ask nicely. You keep at it long enough. You learn a few things about sleeping on floors, like 
avoiding bachelor pads where food and space are likely in short supply, the kinds of places crammed with roommates, big boarding houses rented by a dozen energetic 20-somethings are a last resort. And maybe they have video games and good attitudes, but the place will likely be a mess, and it'll probably smell bad, especially if the 20-somethings are all guys. And the 20-somethings will want to stay up all night, and you have to get to Iowa or Nebraska or wherever the heck you're going tomorrow. So when panhandling for a free floor on which to sleep, you prioritize the suburban family home. You look for the cool parents who brought their kids and their kids' friends to the concert, the out-of-place-looking 40-somethings in band t-shirts, the person I've become. Because the suburban family home is clean, and there's food there. The suburban family home has clean sheets and a spare room or two and air conditioning. The suburban family home has paid their cable bill. And when the exciting 20-somethings tell you about their very cool apartment in PlayStation 2, you say, let me ask the other guys, I'm not sure what we're doing yet. And then you keep looking for the suburban family home. Now on this particular evening, the one where my head was bleeding, it was the suburban family home to which we were en route as I watched the endless wallpaper of cornfields spool out in either direction from the van's window, pressing that towel against my forehead to stop the bleeding. And when we arrived, the family led us up the steps to the night's accommodations. And, you know, we went galumphing in, more than a half dozen of us, sweat-streaked and stinking, as another mom and dad offered a smiling tour of the guest room, saying, help yourself to whatever is in the fridge. And we made with the pleasantries, like you do. We respectfully decline, at least right then. Oh, no, thank you, you're too kind. We couldn't, because we want to be left alone with the cabinets and the cereal and potato chips and fruit roll-ups. <laughs> but maybe on this particular night, I stepped into the family room and stopped because there in the corner, across the couch, across from the couch rather, stood a giant golden harp. It must have been six feet tall, this thing, a great golden column attached to a sliding arch filled with strings so thin and gossamer they catch the light, enormous and imposing and alien, maybe the only real-life harp I had ever seen. So I asked. What's with the harp? And the parents suddenly beam some secret knowledge passing between them as they summon their teenage daughter into the room. She plays, they say, barely able to contain their pride. Would you like to hear? And I said that I would, and I was honest. I really would. Assuming the young lady might protest, but she smiles and nods, and she moves with confidence to the instrument, and she lifts her hands, and with a series of deft elegant movements, music issues forth from the harp and fills the suburban family home. Beautiful, otherworldly music. And I sat there listening, you know, pressing a fresh square of gauze against my forehead. And the others, one by one, the bandmates, they stumbled into the living room and became similarly transfixed. It wasn't the musicianship. We were all musicians. And it wasn't giftedness per se, I don't know that I'd even recognize a harp prodigy if I heard one. And some of our friends were incredibly gifted players. It wasn't that. It was what all of us knew must have been the kind of lonely dedication necessary to actually get good at playing a harp. Who plays the harp? 
And maybe many years after that night, I was and am haunted by the sound of that harp without remembering its song. I don't remember that home exactly. I don't remember the face of the young lady who played it, but I remember the practice precision with which she took to one string and then another commanding melody from this ancient-looking golden monolith. There was truth in the harp waiting to be summoned with only the flesh and bone of a player's fingers, any player that knew how to do it. But the harp would not yield mastery at the behest of my simple, inelegant want. Me, I could sit there and I could pluck at its strings, and maybe I could probably find, given enough time, an innocent, childlike melody in its curious apparatus, but I could not wield the instrument in such a way as to pour from it transfixing, ethereal song that would spill down over my lap and flood the living room of my suburban family home, traveling up the walls, cresting and colliding overhead like a chorus of angels harmonizing their approval of great, glorious discipline. If you want to play the harp, you've got to stick with it, even and especially when the journey gets tough, when you feel lonely, and when you start to wonder if it's worth it at all. Like was previously mentioned, my name is Josh Porter. I am the lead pastor, if you like, of a church called Van City in Vancouver, Washington. And I'm old friends with your very own Alex Retman. We used to teach together many years ago in Portland, Oregon. But I didn't come all the way down here to talk to you guys about my church or harps or the heyday of myself and Alex Retman or head injuries. I came to talk about something called deconstruction. See, I wrote this book called, uh, it's a not-so-subtle title, I'll go ahead and warn you, Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. And the title's kind of like a Rorschach test. How does it make you feel? Do you think, finally, someone stick it to the progressive pseudo-spirituals and their watered-down, deconstructed false religion? Or do you think, death? To deconstruction, deconstruction saved my life. Isn't deconstruction a good thing? Isn't it necessary? Or do you think, what the heck is deconstruction? I didn't come up with a title like death to deconstruction, oblivious to the obvious and inevitable questions and pushback. But one thing I've seen in all of it is a certain recurring motif. Young or old, deconstructed or orthodox, either side of the socio-political aisle, every generation feels like the world is unraveling. I do and did, so did my parents. I was a kid during the emergence of the AIDS crisis and the war on drugs in the 80s, but before that, there had already been the Manson family murders in 1969, the exorcist in 1973. There'd been Woodstock and beat poets and uproar over civil rights activism in the 60s, jazz and Elvis in the 50s. Heck, the ban on interracial marriage in California didn't end until 1948. And before that, there were Nazis and A-bombs and death camps. And before any of that, there'd been civil war and colonization and manifest destiny and musket smoke and cannonballs and the wholesale slaughter of indigenous peoples. And before any of that, there'd already been the Black Plague and Iron Maidens and medieval torture chambers. And long before that, there'd been Greek pederasts as political leaders and Roman emperors who fed children to lions, and there were temple prostitutes and religious orgies, and the world has always been insane. <laughs> Every generation 
faces unique issues of cultural evolution that challenge our perception of any shared ideology or some sense of common morality and make us wonder if what we believe is even worth it at all. Because crawling backward down the ideological timeline of the civilized world, some things change and some things don't. The political right, for example, paints a picture of a, a once glorious moral utopia sliding hopelessly into ethical disrepair on the runaway nightmare train of progressivism. But hundreds of years ago, the sex ethics of some of the biggest cultural hubs and the greatest empires of the world make America in 2023 look like an episode of The Dick Van Dyke Show. <laughs> and cultural moral panic just sort of slides from side to side, from the right to the left and back again, depending on the era. When I was a kid, fundamentalism was taken for granted as an inherently conservative value. So in that era, it was kind of the caricature that conservatives were the moral police, that they were thought of as the bullies or the watchdogs of cultural morality. They had the rule book. They enforced it. Disagreeing with them wasn't just another perspective. It was objectively morally wrong, and we are unwilling to hear otherwise. We don't care about your worldview or your religious views or your upbringing or culture. You must yield to our ideology and politics, education, culture, art. Anyone who doesn't use our approved words must be punished. Any art that sins against our moral paradigm must be vanquished. The art is silenced. The art censored. We're only doing what's right. But today, progressivism is now the moral police, the watchdogs of cultural morality. They hold the rule book, and they enforce it, and it looks exactly the same. And then through all of that, with all of that constantly unfolding across the passage of time and throughout oscillating epics of cultural evolution and devolution, journeys the disciple of Jesus. That's us. It is now, as it ever was, a resistance movement against the gravitational pull of culture, of digital narcissism and cynicism and outrage a narrow road that is neither right nor left, not a war against the culture and not an assimilation into it. There is only the way, faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Now, if you have a Bible on hand, go ahead now and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We'll get to it in just a little bit. But go ahead and open to John 15. Years ago, really, when I heard the first rumblings of panic about Jesus dropouts, people leaving the Christian movement behind. I, I remember reading someone that had worried on the page that, and, and I quote, the deconversion moment has become the new conversion moment. Deconversion is the new conversion. That just as so many of us stood huddled under the concert lighting of youth camps and festivals and High on teenage angst, our brains soupy with hormones, we cried and we raised our hands in worship and we said, I accept Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. Well, now these teenagers had become 20-somethings and 30-somethings and fed up with the lunacy of suffering and evil and religious hypocrisy and nationalism and a Bible that they'd been clobbered with rather than being taught how to read and understand. They were having a new teary-eyed emotional conversion moment out of the brittle husk of American civil Christianity and into something else. Maybe they'd be agnostic. The thrill of ambiguity, embracing no answers over firm ones. Or maybe they just go full atheist. What better way to stick it to God than erasing him? 
or, or maybe not. Maybe they drift down the buffet aisles of spirituality light and make their own plates. A small serving of Buddhism, a few slices of Christian mysticism with no crust, some Hindu philosophy as dressing served up on a hearty bed of American progressivism. But anyway, you slice it. We're out, they said. We're out. Ex-vangelical. Deconstructed. Post-youth group. Take that, mom and dad. Take that, Pastor Alex. <laughs> I would never presume to know what doubt and those dark nights of second-guessing and spiritual cold feet might have been like for each and every Christian in this room, but all of us have had them, will have them. Brennan Manning's talks about moments like these in his memoir, All is Grace. And Manning, if you're not familiar, he was a prolific author and speaker whose favorite subject was easily the scandalous love of Jesus. And he wrote beautifully about it. In different seasons of his life, Manning had been a Catholic priest. He'd transported water via donkey for poor villagers. He worked as a mason's assistant and a dishwasher in France. He was imprisoned by choice, apparently, in Switzerland. And he spent at least six months in a remote cave somewhere in the Zaragoza desert. And though his memoir touches on some of these things, it's really about something else, mostly. One could easily read the entire book as the tragedy of alcoholism. So you read it, and you're confronted with the bare, ugly facts of Brendan Manning's struggle with his addiction, his lies, and his screw-ups. And one could interpret his life a failure and his faith and his ministry as facades. He was a fraud, you might say, a, a total inept failure. Or you can lean full tilt into the weight of the book's title, All is Grace, and allow the brilliant love of Jesus to become a, a kind of cleansing beam that clears away Manning's sin and deception so that all truly does become grace. Who cares how bad he failed? All is grace. Or maybe there's truth in both things. And maybe we already know that. The road of discipleship, though straight and narrow, is perilous. Anyone who follows Jesus knows this. We walk upright, we run, we throw our heads back and bask in the all-warming glory of amazing grace, and then we fall, and we fail, and we crawl, and we scramble, and teeter, and we quit, and we come back, and we cheat, and we lie, and we fight, and we hate, and we start over again. In Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Bunyan imagines the road of discipleship as something lined with monsters and archers and liars and pitfalls and swamps because we go forward and then we go backward and then forward again. We get hurt. We hurt other people. And along that dangerous, narrow road, there are no walls. You're not trapped. You're not confined to following Jesus. You either walk the road or you don't. There are no off-ramps because one can simply abandon the road at any time and at any point in the journey, and many do. And even though there are no off-ramps, there are deconversion moments, instances or even seasons of doubt and despair, of frustration and disillusionment, of suffering, but of lucidity when the trials of the road become, at least we think, too much. And we pause where we are and we, we lift one leg and we let one foot hover above the ground just to the left of the road and we ask ourselves, what if I quit walking? 
In Brennan Manning's memoir, he remembers one of those deconversion moments that came when he least expected it. As the story goes, he'd been living amongst the poor in rural France, shoveling manure, washing dishes, and bringing water to villagers on a donkey's back. And it was in that season, in prayer one evening, that the Spirit of God suddenly and unexpectedly exposed his selfishness. And he was devastated. I saw my life as vitiated by pride, he wrote by the inordinate desire to be liked, loved, approved, applauded, and accepted. My motives were peeled away to reveal complete self-centered yuck. I thought maybe I had grown beyond it or out of it, but I hadn't. He went on to confess, I felt like my life was a waste. I determined to commit spiritual suicide, cut myself off from God and the church and my brothers and turn my back on it all. And it was in this moment, in one of his most vivid deconversion moments, that another priest found Brennan in the chapel and asked him what had happened, visibly shaken. Brennan told him everything, and the other priest said this, you are on the threshold of receiving the greatest grace of your life. You are discovering what it means to be poor in spirit. Brother Brennan, it's okay not to be okay. And so Brendan Manning looks down at his hovering foot and returns it to the narrow road and takes another step forward. But there would be a lot more falling before it was over. There would be more deconversion moments. But this one, that night in the chapel in France, had been repurposed for a new conversion. Depending on where you're sitting, many American Christians have begun to feel as if things are breaking down. American evangelicalism, as it is often called, seems to be toppling beneath the weight of its own politicization. The stragglers are making for new camps on the outskirts of orthodoxy. The youth group, youth group kids have grown up. And they're deconstructing. The conservatives are going liberal. The progressives are becoming fundamentalists. The Calvinists have given up determinism. The Baptists are going Catholic. The megachurch conglomerates are falling to sex scandals and embezzlement. The Christian influencers are being canceled. But it's always been like this. And we have to consistently remind ourselves and one another that this movement is much bigger than a tiny demographic in one place at one time. In his book, After Doubt, Professor A.J. Swoboda recognizes the irony of the fact that statistically, the quintessential deconstructionist inevitably falls victim to the very thing they most violently critique. He writes this, if I, a white Christian male, were to take elements of someone else's culture and use them for my own purposes, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible and change them to fit my purposes with no regard for the intent with which they were written, they would call me enlightened and evolved. How could this be? He goes on to say, for every millennial affluent white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people with less privilege in this world who are finding in the Bible the greatest message one could ever imagine. And that's not just inspirational fluff. There are numbers to back this up. In reports published as recently as 2022, Dr. Gina Zerlo, who's a historian, a sociologist, a demographer, demonstrated that her research indicates that 67% of the world's Christians live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania. The The largest share of those live in Africa, and the majority of them are women. And the median age of Christians in sub-Saharan Africa is just 19. Now, here's why this matters. Maybe sometimes from where you sit, 
It feels as if the historic Christian movement is being stripped for parts by jaded American ex-evangelicals, but it just isn't true. Maybe it seems as if Christianity has been run into the ground by American scandal and marred beyond repair by televangelists and politicians, but it hasn't because the average Christian is not represented by some cynical white Californian post-Christian podcaster dude. The average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria. And the same Christian movement from 2,000 years ago is thriving all over the world where, though always complicated and always imperfect, it remains undefeated by cynicism and corruption that you and I take for granted. And the hilarious irony is that a majority white affluent Western demographic has committed to such a vocal critique of a movement founded and primarily sustained by non-white people who had no affluence and no privilege whatsoever. We belong to something bigger than us, bigger than this room, bigger than this group, something ancient and beautiful, and yes, broken and imperfect though it may be. And we need to come back to a space like this week in and week out and look around a room full of broken, imperfect people with their hands outstretched to God, singing, praying, listening, and learning, and remember, I am not alone in this. I belong to a family, imperfect though we may be. Ours is a way of life, a kingdom that grows the world over for thousands of years, and I walk this road with my brothers and sisters. When a group of people with a shared problem and purpose come together, they can learn from one another, with one another, in service to a cause, a master, how to master themselves in the name of something bigger. I think that maybe all of our big deconversion moments are actually just invitations to move deeper into the beautiful and often terrifying storm of God's love and grace. The next season of discipleship through the crucible of our often painful formation as we navigate the chaos of life in a wor broken world, that maybe we can, we can mask our hurt until it festers and seethes, or we can lean forward, hands up, chin down, and keep going. Jesus himself had deconversion moments. As the story goes, when the devil came to him and the Lord himself was tempted, in the language of the scriptures, to throw it all away, tempted to relinquish his trust in the Father, to pervert the scriptures, tempted by power, by glory, and tempted... Though he was, Jesus moved through each opportunity to abandon ship, past the deconstruction and the deconversion, and deeper into the heart of knowing God through obedient faithfulness. Deconversion as the new conversion. Why, I often wonder, do we so often vilify our dark nights of being romanced by deconversion as if they were scandals indicative of spiritual ineptitude? Doesn't every apprentice know that as the journey toward mastery moves forward, it gets harder, not easier? Don't they assume that each new test comes to them with increasing levels of complexity and that though their maturing and apprenticeship equips and qualifies them for the task, it does not guarantee their victory. Instead, the kung fu student goes for the next belt knowing they could fail. The, the boxer faces the next ranked contender knowing they could be knocked out. The plumber sets out to repair the pipe without their teacher's assistance. The, the tattoo artist dabs the flesh with alcohol, takes a deep breath, and says, God, I hope I don't mess this guy's shoulder all up. The, the young woman sits down at the harp again and again through all the wrong notes and broken calluses and just keeps playing. 
Which brings us finally to John 15. Now, John 15, in which Jesus famously promises, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, Jesus keeps saying. The secret, the truth, the power is in proximity, intimacy, closeness. Stay with Jesus. Keep Jesus before your thoughts. Hold him in your heart. Turn his words over in your head. Read them at dawn, at dusk. Sit before him in conversation and in reflection. Be with Jesus, or to use his language, abide in the vine. Remain in him. But after all that stuff about vines and branches, Jesus actually goes on. Look at John 15, beginning with verse 18. Jesus says this. You're going to love this one. If the world hates you... Keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. But when the advocate or the spirit comes, who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, he says this. Listen to this. All this, meaning the vine, the branches, abiding, if they hated you, they'll hate me, the warnings, the inevitable backlash, the hardships, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Abiding in the vine is more than the first priority of discipleship. It is the armor against the arrows of deconstruction and deconversion. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. And Jesus knew that we might. He'd been there before us, walking the road of faithfulness when he was tempted to do otherwise. He went deeper into faithfulness before us to show us how it's done. And he gave us the secret of resolve before the inevitability of our deconversion moments. Remain in me. The world has always been a broken, crazy place, dark and twisted with all its power mongering and jockeying for position and moral high ground, the swinging pendulum of fundamentalism, right, left, right, left. And against this backdrop, everyone on the journey of discipleship, young and old, mature and immature, has and will arrive at junctions, forking out to either abandon faith or to wade deeper into the wild waters of more faithfulness still. And though it may seem like a new phenomenon, there have always been eager legions lining up for the off-ramp. When Jesus warned about it 2,000 years ago, Peter, who watched it happen, Paul, who wrestled with it as he planted churches across the empire, the church fathers and mothers who confronted it and wrote about it and fought against it, John Bunyan allegorized it in 1678, and we're still reading Peter and Paul and Jesus and the early church fathers and mothers and John Bunyan, all centuries later in another part of the world and another part of the movement, because we're still here. We often arrive on the shores of deconversion tossed by the stormy sea of discipleship and life itself, and we find ourselves laid bare as frauds, selfish, petty, 
insincere. But we also get there in pain. We've been hurt and we've done plenty of hurting ourselves. If you haven't yet, you will. If you have, you probably will again. And there is often, yes, immaturity and self-interest and something like deconstruction, but that doesn't delegitimize our frailty or weakness or suffering or the hurt that has been to us or the hurt that we have doled out ourselves. And this is also why at that very crossroads, Jesus appears to beckon us deeper still. The crucible of doubt becoming the invitation to greater healing and wholeness and salvation. Now, obviously, I don't know where you're at or where you've been between these dark nights or just beyond one or never experienced one at all or on the precipice of another. I don't know. But I do know that they appear before us all along the narrow road of discipleship. And we're still here. I've often thought of church affectionately, almost like a uh, basement recovery program dedicated to faithfulness as an act of rebellion. When addicts shuffle into musty old rooms, sipping bad coffee from styrofoam cups and reminding one another the famous old adage, keep coming back, it works, it works if you work it, because they've learned the truth about togetherness as the venue for a faithful life of integrity. It works as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, doesn't mean here is the infallible secret of victory over addiction. Instead, I think it means if we keep trying and if we don't give up on one another or ourselves, and if we remain faithful, then we can go forward together. All of us have and will arrive at our own moments between deconversion and deeper faith. What, what made the difference for Brendan Manning that night? the story I told in what seems like an hour ago. Another disciple of Jesus, one that he called brother, stopped and asked him what happened and then spoke into his life. Another way of putting it is church. Down the helter-skelter spiral of cultural insanity and tribal warfare, across the stormy seas of discipleship and doubt, we can beckon one another into greater faithfulness, or we can stand against the wind and rain all alone, our tired legs shaking, ready to give, no one to hold us up. Not a global political superpower, but a rabble of broken men and women rescued by the scandal of love and who keep coming back, empowered by the Spirit of God to move further still. And the music of our lives and our love and our faithfulness becomes something more. If you want to play the harp, you've got to stick with it, even and especially when the journey gets tough and when you feel lonely and when you start to wonder if it's worth it at all. And when the music of our lives and our love and our faithfulness becomes a great chorus it will be a chorus of defiance against a world hell-bent on deconversion and death. We do fall, and we get up, and we keep walking the road constantly on the precipice of the greatest grace of our lives. Amen, Lord Jesus, give us grace. Let me pray and ask for God's Spirit to empower us to do just that. Father, I... Of 
course, recognize in a room of this size, it's easy to stand up here and talk about things like doubt and despair and deconversion and assume that, that probably everyone that's in here that's had any stretch of experience with things like church or the scriptures and following Jesus knows that the narrow road is not easy. They have confirmed what you've said would be true, that in this world we will have trouble. Given a, a room of this size with men and women, young and old, there's also a spectrum of experience and what it means to remain faithful through those trials. And thank you that we have one another, that you have not left us to this all alone, that by your Spirit, we have access to the voice of God, to the presence of God, and that through your church, we have access to the family of God and the stories replete within the family of God that empower us to go forward again and again and again. May this church and the stories in this room, the men, women, and families, the children who will grow up knowing the people in this room as family, May they find in this place a movement of rebellion against the status quo, against the way things are, against the world itself, and deeper into the scandalous love of Jesus, day in and day out, year after year, as we hold one another up and usher one another deeper still into more faithfulness. It's in the name of Jesus, the King who goes before us, that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.